Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to the next episode of 518 Talks. I am your host, William Rivas, and what I'm going to be talking about today is uh, this concept of community and what I call the code of common unity. In Webster's Dictionary, uh, they describe community as a group of people living in the same place or having a particular characteristic in common. Now, taking that at face value, that seems to be a very simplistic approach to describing what should be just about any group of individuals. It doesn't really go into depth to their conditions or the state of that community that they live in, but it really gives just a general view of where I want to go. So I always loved words. I, I used to be a spelling bees when I was a kid. Uh, I loved writing. I especially loved word problems as a kid. You know, those funky sentences that would talk about something, but within that sentence or phrase, there would be a problem that needed solving. Um, I enjoyed having to sift through the phrase to find the necessary information to solve said problem. So for me, uh, when I always thought about the term community, uh, it gave me a feeling of nostalgia. Um, I remember being a young kid playing hide-and-go-seek with my friends, spending the entire day at the park playing ball, hanging out at the swimming pool and waiting until dusk to ride my bike home, uh, block parties and barbecues, uh, best friends and certain summer crush. For many, it was youth sports, family vacations, as well as holidays with family and that very first day of school. I know everybody listening, you remember that very first day of school, that, that school outfit, you know, the one you had to lay out the night before. Um, for the longest, I remember community the same way you do, um, as a great place and time uh, that would shape my life. I also remember the violence. I remember the shootouts. I remember the fights. Uh, I remember families in my community suffering from poverty. Um, I remember having to borrow food from each other. Um, I remember some of my best friends to this day um, giving me clothes. Um, <laughs> I remember having to run an extension cord to the neighbor's house for electricity because the lights had been cut off. Um, but those are some of the things I remembered in my community. Now, as a kid, um, I really didn't understand what poverty was because everybody around me was in it. So, you know, for us, this was what we thought the world looked like. We thought this was the situations that kind of the world was in. Um, but based on the premise of community, it's almost as if you're forced to be grouped based on location and socioeconomic status. Now, that's something I'm really starting to learn now because I work in the field um, in social work and human services, in which now the the lens of poverty and community has to make more sense because it's it's my, it's my profession, so I have to take things like that into consideration. There are kind of a few outstanding factors that are common within families in certain areas. Uh, housing: Are people renting apartments or buying homes, and what type of housing? What type of conditions? Um, as a kid, uh, the majority of people in my neighborhood, the majority of people I grew up with. They rented. Um, we were all in apartments, different apartments, kind of, you know, within an area. Very few people that I knew growing up owned their home, were in the process of owning their home. Um, and we all lived in, in similar conditions, um, you know, as far as as far as our apartments. Um, you know, we, we all had very small black and white TVs. Um, just about everybody I knew had roaches. <laughs> um you know, and a lot of them were, were very cold, but the, the parents, our, our parents, did the best they could to make them feel like, like home. Um, there was always a lot of kids, sleepovers. You know, you had to, everybody, you know, knows that, you know, if you spend the night at your cousin's house, you may have to sleep foot to head. <laughs> so as far as housing, those were some of the conditions that we as a people lived in when we were younger. 
um, employment? Are people working full-time jobs? Are they working off-the-book work? Or are they business owners? Business owners? Are they career-oriented? Um, Employment-wise, it was interesting. You know, as kids, everybody I knew worked. Um, and it, if they didn't work full-time jobs, it was the type of jobs they worked. Um, most of the people in the community worked, the men, uh, they worked a lot of these labor jobs. So whether it was construction or landscaping or in a warehouse or something like that, or they worked off the books in, uh, in, in you know, uh, you know, not really creating a salary, but, but just working, getting paid a couple dollars here and there, working on cars and stuff like that. Um, my mom, she worked at, uh, at, at a friendlies at a diner. Um, I remember that before she ended up getting a job with the, uh, the sheriff. And then, you know, that really took us into a little bit different of a, of a living situation. Um, but I didn't know many business owners as a kid. Um, a lot of the people I knew worked for other people. Um, I really, you know, business, being a business owner or being career oriented as a kid, I mean, you know, while you was in school, you had, you know, they would ask you what you wanted to be when you grow up, but they never really told you how to get there. Uh, educations, are the residents of that community, are they going to college? What are the dropout rates? How many college graduates in the family? Um, it's very interesting. A trend um, that I noticed when I became like a young adult was, when I went to college, a lot of the people that I knew growing up that graduated high school and were going to college were, were the first individuals in their family to go to college. Um, and, and, you know, at that age, because I was still in the partying or whatnot, the significance of that statement really didn't, it really didn't register to me uh, how important that was or why that was happening. Um, the significance of that now, again, as a professional, I see I see the difference in generations and how, um, you know, how hard our parents worked to put us in a position to be educated and how, you know, we were in the position to be educated because of the work that they did. The same way that, you know, we push for our children to be in higher levels of education or to further their education. So if you're a first generation college graduate, um, then you may push for your child to not only graduate college, but go on to uh, their bachelor's their, or their master's or their doctorate. Um, so I found that to be very interesting. Um, in a community, um, I noticed in certain communities, especially ones in poverty, um, you have a lot of that first time high school graduates and college graduates. Um, in other communities, though, you have families who have gone to the same exact college to the point where some families, they, they are invested into that college. And it's almost a given that that college is where you go because your father or your mother went there. Crime. What are the various crimes committed in that community? Uh, how many are how many people are on supervision, parole, probation? What are the ages of the offenders? Um, when I was a kid, uh living in the living in you know upstate New York um, the the major thing was was drugs um, everybody was on them the majority of people were on them uh, the majority of people were, were selling them it was almost a way of life um, the same as was people who were coming and going in and out of incarceration and coming home on parole and probation again as a kid, uh, you not knowing or understanding the significance of that statement, um, it was normal to me. So when I became of a certain age, um, it was almost as if 
uh, I already knew what I was supposed to be doing because I had watched other men in my community do it. So again, for me, it wasn't it wasn't peer pressure. It wasn't it wasn't anything like that. It wasn't anything having to do with anyone else. It was just what I saw. So it started. It was what I I mimicked what I saw. Um, so and, and seeing what came with uh, uh, drugs was the violence. Um, so in communities of poverty, you see a lot of violence, uh, domestic violence, in the home violence. Families are stressed. Money is tight. Uh, a lot of arguments. Uh, 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 so you, you see a lot of miscommunication, a lot of frustration, and it plays out into be domestic violence. Um, and outside of that domestic violence in the home, you see it play out into violence in the community. Um, robberies, assaults, murder, things of that nature. Um, I noticed that as a young age, actually, in all honesty, um, because I was so used to it, at some point I was desensitized to it. Uh, people being shot, stabbed, cut, jumped, assaulted. It became regular nature for me in my community to the point where it didn't bother me almost when stuff like that happened um, because I was so used to seeing it. Um, me and my friends conversate about a time when, you know, at like 17 years old, uh, we got up and went outside one day and realized we were the oldest men, the oldest male figures in our neighborhood because everybody else was either incarcerated on the run or on their way back home um, from prison. Um, and what I, what I noticed now was the ages of the offenders are getting younger. So as a kid, you know, you played sports, you really didn't, didn't involve yourself into the streets till you were like 17, 18. But now you have these kids who are 13, 14 years old who are involved in the streets on a regular basis. So the ages of the offenders are getting younger. Um, and again, that's something you see particular in communities of poverty where there's very little opportunity for assistance. There's an age gap in which from about... 13, 14 to like 18, where there's very little programs for kids. If they're not involved in sports, then it's almost as if uh, the educational system isn't isn't creating something or as if the city uh, officials are not creating something for these youth of those ages. Um, for some people, the conversation is, is that intentional? Um, systematic oppression is real and it's something to pay attention to. Structural layout. What are some of the buildings found in your community? Where do people get food? Are there parks, libraries, community center? Um, this one is very important now, specifically. Um, growing up as a kid, we had six or seven different youth programs um, in, in a 10 block radius, meaning you could go to one program from one program to get homework help. Uh, after you get your homework help, you go to another program because, you know, your friends would be there. Uh, and from there, you guys would go to another program and play basketball. So if you got kicked out of one, you still had a various opportunity of programs you could go to and be involved in. Um, during the summer, we frequently, we frequently hung out, you know, at the parks. Uh, we were always outside. Uh, a lot of the food we got was from corner stores, uh, bodegas, uh, uh, mom and pop shops, um, you know, uh, family vendors, things of that nature. Um, you know, we had access to libraries, but we weren't, you know, really interested in reading like that as kids in my generation. We like to be outside. So being inside wasn't really something we were interested in. But the different, you know, it's interesting kind of how that has flipped. Um, now you, we have very little community centers 
in, in, in an area in which there are so many youth and so many families. Um, you know, you, you find in communities in poverty, you find these check cashing places that'll charge you uh, some money to take your money out. But those very same businesses you don't see in wealthy communities. Um, if you drive into a community, a, uh, a, a poverty a community that's in, you will see a lot of, uh, you'll see these uh, pawn shops, you know, where you can go and get, you know, cash on a dollar for some of your goods. Um, in wealthy communities, you don't see those things. Um, you know, you'll see a lot of bodegas and a lot of these, a lot of these, you won't see many grocery marts, if any, in communities in poverty. But if you go to wealthy communities, you see on a regular basis, you see that they have grocery stores. The, 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 the type of food that's given to a community in poverty is much different than what's given to a community uh, with, a, with a wealthy status or wealthy label. Finance. Uh, what are the financial institutions in that area? Where do people cash checks? Do they have bank accounts? Um, so when I was a kid, um, you know, you would go to the bank. Parents would take you to the bank. You'd open that little bank account, get your little bank book, uh, and, and they would teach you how to do checking. Uh, so what that system is now developed into is now these debit cards. So, you know, you have somebody who works for their money. They put their money into a bank account on a card. And, you know, wherever they go, they have a chip or a swipe where you can just swipe away. It almost gives you the freedom to spend your money and not to save it. Because um, as studies will show, people in poverty, our money leaves the community almost as soon as we get it. And communities that are wealthy, um, what they do is... They keep their money in that community. So, uh, you know, if you're in a community, I own a grocery store, so you shop with me. This person owns a clothing store, you shop with them. We circle our money within the community, and it stays in our community a lot longer than communities in poverty. In communities in poverty, because we're not taught the real value of a dollar, um, we spend our money. And so a lot of time, most people uh, in communities of poverty, we live what's called check to check, where... You know, a piece of our, a portion of our check is already spent because, you know, we borrowed. So the value of money or, or transition is not taught the same way it is uh, in different communities. I found that to be something very interesting because then as an adult, I struggled with paying bills. Now, I've gotten better because I, I've, I've had to retrain myself um, in spending habits, what's important, um, how to save money, put it away and leave it there. Um and stop going to these places where, you know, you got to go because it's a quick fix. A lot of times people will go to these check cashing places because they don't have proper ID. So when these things happen, it's a matter of, well, I'd rather go over here because I can cash this check very quickly. You know, I have to pay a couple dollars on it. But because, again, the value of a dollar doesn't mean as much as it would normally you know, we don't really see the problem with going to this check cashing institution. Um, and the family structures. Is it one or two parent homes? Is the other parent involved? Involvement in social services, family court, family businesses, vacations? In wealthy communities, DSS is null and void. Um, in communities in poverty, DSS is almost like the government. They're like the law. Um, and the, the way they are, uh, they have the ability to govern who or what is in your home and how you operate. Um, 
What I found interesting was is I, I worked with uh, some people who were coming out of poverty and I had a gentleman who had just come out of incarceration and he started working. So he was doing what he was supposed to do and DSS denied him assistance because they said he was making uh, a dollar over the poverty limit. So I really I had to call a supervisor. I said, because, you know, what is the poverty limit? And what I was told was the poverty limit is different for everybody. So there's this equation that they put in how much money you make, uh, what are your bills, things like that. And they look at that. And then out of this equation comes a number. Um, and, you know, this is what said the poverty limit is or what it could be based on what the housing is. Um, and I found that to be interesting because, you know, I'd always thought about DSS as this, as this agency that's supposed to help you. Again, growing up in poverty, you know, that's all you hear about is WIC, welfare, DSS, families going to this place uh, to get assistance, to move, you know, move their situation forward. But really, I started to learn as an adult that it's really almost uh, a, 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 a piece of the mechanism that keeps people in poverty because it doesn't really motivate you to move forward. What it does is it almost keeps you in this state of stagnation in which, you know, as long as you do a little bit, we'll give you this. Um, part of the struggle with DSS, what people are having trouble with is men coming home from incarceration. Um, women are, are not, in a lot of cases, not allowed to have them stay in the home if they have a DSS case then you may have to go through a process of trying to get him on to the case, and that could be a process. So, you know, women are making a decision to have men outside the homes because they are unable to have uh, uh, this, the father of their child or their significant other on their DSS case because of what his background may may have been, um, which, which, is, which, which then offers a, a, an additional strain on not only the mother, but then the child sees that. So, you know, it, it can offer real trouble for, for a situation. Now, family court. <laughs> I can go all day about this one, uh, but I won't. Um, so family court structure is, is interesting to say the least because um, with family court, kind of like Department of Social Services, you have a system that's supposed to be in play to offer assistance. Um, it's supposed to offer as mediator, um, it's supposed to off, you know, be uh, a guiding light uh, in assisting families to to fix their situations. But a lot of times it's not. Family court has actually it's been weaponized against families of of, of color, not just families of color, but families in poverty. Period. Because one, you, you you're so caught up in the day to day operation of life. A lot of times people don't have an opportunity to study family court law or understand family court language. So when you walk into family court, a lot of times you're blindsided by the, by the language. You're blindsided by the policies and procedures. And if you're not in the know, then just about anything can happen. And a lot of times what happens with, with, with people who go into family court, uh, they walk in already frustrated because they've been arguing with a significant other or a former significant other. So when they walked in, the, the fight now becomes between this person and that person and the goal of co-parenting or, 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 you know, co-raising the child is now forgotten. So now it becomes a fight between two individuals and the family court structure thrives off this. So you have a family who was already struggling when it was two parents working in a home. So now that, that family is now stripped and, and it's broken apart. So it's now one parent 
and one child and the other parent on the other side. So now a, a family structure has been broken up and a family court intervenes in the middle between that. And now what you have is you have miscommunication, you have frustration, you have a situation that's detrimental to the raising of the child. Um, but the, the, the good thing about that is, is two parents can work out their situation to cohabit and to co-parent, uh, and to focus on what's in the best interest of the child. You just got to be very mindful of the language and the policies and procedures that they use when you walk into that family court. Um, the youth in our community, uh, are they being engaged by adults? Are there youth programs? Um, what are the activities? Uh, as a kid, I, I will say this honestly, we had a ton of activities. We had church groups. We had uh, sports groups. We had just about everything we had access to. So our decisions to make bad choices as, as adults wasn't because of lack of activity. Uh, if anything, it might have been a lack of difference in activity because, you know, a lot of activities everywhere we went were the same. Um, There's a lot of basketball. Uh, there was a lot of football. Um, and there was always music and some food. Uh, we did have some wonderful church groups, YFC, who, who took us outside uh, of our regular community, which was absolutely great, um, and which offered us a look at something different than the life that we lived on a regular basis, different than our surroundings. Um, and I would have loved to have more of that as a kid. Um, I fit in now in our communities. There's not much of anything, really. Um, if it's not a program with basketball, um, then, and I'm not sure really what it is. I will say this, that really across the capital district as a whole, um, individuals are starting programs that offer more than just basketball, um, offer more than just a book and a conversation. People are really creating wonderful programs that are digging into the, to the psychological effects of poverty that they've had on our youth. People are teaching our youth business. They are mentoring our youth. And, and real quick, just let me address that. Um, the difference between tutoring and mentoring. Uh, tutoring, it doesn't take a commitment. Tutoring, you can show up for an hour. You can, uh, you know, take some notes. You can write some stuff down. Mentoring, you really have to be committed to the youth that you're working with. And that's on a regular, that's on an everyday basis. As a mentor, your ch uh, the child you're mentoring can call you almost any time of the day with any problem. And you got to be on point. You got to be able to, you know, conversate with them, to build with them. There has to be a, a level of commitment, a trust, an authenticity within that. Um, and I feel like as a kid, we had a lot of tutors. We did not have a lot of mentors. Um, I will say right now, I do see a developing language, a change, a renewed energy in, in the mentoring and the engagement of our youth. And I look forward to kind of really seeing how this starts to develop over the next few years. Uh, something else that, that, that we need to address about our communities is politics. Uh, and this is a huge one. Um, do the residents of the surrounding area vote? Uh, are they a part of local political organizations? Are they able to vote? Are local politicians engaged in community building? Um, as a kid, the interesting thing is, is I really, I mean, you heard about politicians, uh, but you really didn't understand what one was. Um, you didn't really have, you know, that up and close personal feel. Um, you heard politicians' names spread. You know, you knew who the president was, but you didn't know necessarily that he was a politician or what a politician was or what they did. The 
concept of politician wasn't something that was relevant to us as a kid because we really didn't know any politicians. It wasn't like they lived in our community. Um, as an adult, though, uh, and being around politicians more and even taking an interest in politics and running for school board a couple years ago, um, one of the most interesting and honest conversations I've ever had was uh, I went to the New York State Assembly and uh, you know, I was fighting for education with a group from Schenectady. And um, a politician pulled me aside, I won't name him, and he looked me in my face and he told me, he says, William, I want you to know the truth about politics. I want you to understand this. I said, okay. He says, the reason why communities in poverty don't get what they request is because they're not registered voters, they're not homeowners, and they're not taxpayers. And I'm gonna be honest, I, I was extremely shocked by the fact that he said that. Um, and this was before I ran for school board. And uh, when I ran for school board, I was given a document, um, a stack of documents um, about voters in the area. And exactly what that man said was the statistics that was on that paper. It showed registered voters, what party they were registered for. It showed the homeowners, where they own homes at. It shows those who paid their, their home. It showed all this statistical information that kind of proved that in certain communities, your vote, your ability, your voice is viewed as less than because you don't have a certain number of qualifications, um, which, which again, bothered me. Bothered, bothered me, which is why I took a step back from politics for a little while because um, that part of it was very frustrating for me. So I, what I started focusing on was uh, helping people become homeowners, uh, helping people register to vote, and assisting people in understanding the political process. Uh, not just listening to people who had great stories, but but seeing people who showed up to be in the community and not people who just showed up for pictures, photo ops or to kiss babies, but people who showed up and, and really and sat down with the people in the community and had conversations, people who volunteered at community events and not just the ones where everybody showed up. at. You know, it, it takes a different set of commitment. It takes a different level of commitment to show up to everything. Because, you know, as it's based as a politician, you don't necessarily have to. You're only supposed to show up when the cameras are there. So when you have somebody who shows up when the cameras aren't there and takes their suit jacket off and they dig in and they start being involved in the community and talking to families and spending time in that community, you have to look at that person differently. So as being an adult, my experience with politics and politicians has been a lot different. Um, I feel like I have a different level of understanding of the structure. Um, so I, that, that's something I just, you know, I found interesting. But those are some of, of the factors that play out in, in, in a community and why uh, I believe uh, the book that I'm writing, The Code of Common Unity, is so important. Um, eight years ago, I started working in nonprofits. Um, I had just been recently uh, released from incarceration for the last time. Um, and I found myself with a group of men who decide they want to focus on the plight of fathers in the community. 
um, that group was called Community Fathers. The mentor at my, at that, my mentor at that time was uh, Walter Simpkins. Um, the work that they would do would include family court advocacy, uh, men's therapy group, uh, trainings that would allow fathers the opportunity to utilize their life experiences to be employed in community work. Um, their mission statement was rebuilding community one father at a time. Um, I would spend the next seven years with Community Fathers Group diving deep into the work of restoring fatherhood to our community and the people who needed it. Um, I would learn how to write grants, the inner workings and infrastructures of the family court system, um, fighting for fathers' rights, and I would help build programs and resources to assist men with getting back in the lives of their children. Um, while doing so, I would also expand my efforts in education youth programs, employment, formerly incarcerated individuals, housing, mental health, substance abuse, trauma-informed care. Um, what I learned never really satisfied what it was that I was seeing because in learning all this stuff, it allowed me to see the world through a different set of lenses. Um, I st still continued to feel like something was missing or there was factors in play that I wasn't fully aware of or even really ready to understand. Um, so at some point, I started to ask the question of what was wrong with what we were doing? Um, I mean, from a professional standpoint, uh, the process from a service provider is what the client or the program participant was doing wrong. That's what the training told me. So if somebody went through my program and they uh, were dis unsuccessfully discharged, didn't complete, um, our training would tell us that we were supposed to identify what the person did, what that person did wrong. Um, so we would begin to look solely at the responsibility of the client as to how successful they are, not take into consideration the service provider's responsibility to provide the necessary resources and tools for successful transitions into society. Um, and, and as I think about the code of common unity and this overall theory of community that I'm speaking of, um, that's how I look at things now. So when I look at um, any area, the place that I, that, I, that I call home, the place that I come from, I start to be able to identify how we weren't given the proper tools, the proper information, or the proper instructions to become successful. Not saying that we could not become successful, but, but because of where we come from, we had a little bit more difficult um, opportunity. Um, I believe the idea of community work was originally unbiased and pure in its efforts, but somewhere along the line, um, that changed. Uh, while it began by activists and freedom fighters, it has been adopted by politicians looking for photo opportunities and community leaders looking to become politicians. Um, the basis of community programming and an activity once guided by passion and the purpose of uplifting the inhabitants of that area is now replaced by community events driven by social media popularity and the need for recognition and one plastering their wall with awards given to them by their friends. I believe the true nature of community work lies somewhere dormant in the hopes of us awakening again that force that is behind the movements that make our people great. It is an unfortunate place we are in where community agencies and organizations whose mission statements clearly mention buzzwords such as programming and social justice, all while building programs that never really met the needs of anyone because it was not driven by purpose but by policy and procedure. Um, I say all that to say this, while our communities in poverty were once in a disadvantaged place with the renewed energy of entrepreneurs and educators of 
young individuals who have grown up in poverty and now seen that they have the opportunity to change it. Um, I am very hopeful for the future of our communities in poverty and, and for the for the future of our youth. Um, I love being alive at this time period and seeing the things that I am seeing. See, I, I am extremely blessed to be a part of the movements and work with the people I work with. Uh, I believe in the code of common unity and the fact that we are changing the narrative. Um, I love the platforms that are being created for individuals to share their voice, their idea, their passion, uh, their vision for life and how they're going to change the world. I absolutely adore, uh, you know, the movements as a whole, really across the world. Um, I love the change that I am seeing. So I am very hopeful for our communities. I am very hopeful for our world. Um, I'd like to say thank you, everybody, for tuning in. My name is William Revis. This is another episode of 518 Talks Podcast. Make sure you tune in for our next episode where we go Wolfpack Wednesdays, building wealth. Have a great day. Thank you.